You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Each morning I spent a few hours writing fiction, and then I would go buy a sandwich and sit by the sea for hours, just watching and listening to the waves crash against the shore. It was October, so it was too cold to swim, and the beach was empty except for an occasional fisherman with his cuttlefish haul or a villager going for a stroll. I became fascinated by a young, beautiful nun who each day I saw taking a walk by the sea, dressed in a long gray and white habit, on the arm of an older woman I imagined to be her mother. Every afternoon they took the same route at the same pace and never spoke. They had an air of stoic resignation about them, and I decided the young nun was ill, probably with tuberculosis, and that the sea air had been prescribed by the local datore. Or maybe she was lovesick, having forsaken man as her husband, but finding marriage to the Lord personally unfulfilling. Maybe, fingers crossed, she had tragically fallen for an Italian priest. I cycled through these various scenarios, but never landed on a resolution. I hadn't left the frustrated novelist back at home. Wherever I went, there she was, trying to weave a dramatic plot point out of the mundane. Barbara Feynman Todd is the founding journalism director at Georgetown University. She teaches in the English department there. She's a co-founder of the Pearl Project, and she co-authored the ebook The Truth Left Behind Inside the Kidnapping and Murder of Daniel Pearl. Her work has appeared in the Washington Post, Glamour, the Huffington Post, the Daily Beast, Newsweek, and on NPR. Her new book, written as Barbara Feynman Dodd, is Pretend I'm Not Here, How I Worked with Three Newspaper Icons, One Powerful First Lady, and Still Managed to Dig Myself Out of the Washington Swamp. Thank you for emerging from that swamp, Barbara. Thank you, Rick, for allowing me to emerge. <laughs> a memoir is, by definition, a form of self-definition. And this book is really about the conflict between you and and your occupation, which, by virtue of its definition, takes you away from defining yourself. So explain what it is you were doing so many years. Yeah, so I started in Washington as what's called a copy aide, basically a copy boy in the Washington Post style section. And I did that for a year. And I also got to, on the side, cover parties as a freelancer for the style section, political fundraisers usually. And then I got the opportunity to work in the investigative unit directly for Bob Woodward Woodward of Watergate fame and his investigative unit. And after I was there for a year doing that, Woodward decided to write a book about the CIA. William Casey was the director at that time. And so I switched from being the researcher for the entire unit for just working for Woodward on that book. And I found that I really enjoyed working on a long project that had a deadline that was off in the future rather than daily journalism. So after Woodward completed that book, I needed another job and I didn't want to work at the newspaper. 
And he suggested, Woodward suggested, I go up to New York and help Carl Bernstein, who was trying to finish a book, a memoir, about his parents being accused of being communist during the Red Scare. So I temporarily moved up to New York. I lived in Carl's apartment, and I helped him finish his book. I was his researcher and basically his nudge, his nag. And after that, I started getting uh, more gigs. I got a reputation for helping journalists and politicians in Washington. Meanwhile, I was still nursing this compulsion to write fiction. And I got an idea for a novel, and I started writing it. When I completed it, I got an agent, and she tried to sell the novel. And she called me up one day, and she said, I have good news and I have bad news. Which do you want first? So I said, I'll take the bad news. It's kind of my heritage. (laughs) (laughs) So the bad news was she couldn't sell the novel. The good news, in her mind, was that she had an opportunity for me to help a congresswoman write a book, and I would become a ghostwriter. So that's how my career started as a ghostwriter. I had actually done a little ghostwriting before, just little bits and pieces. You know, there's this slippery slope of editing and heavy editing that can turn into rewriting that can turn into ghostwriting. So I'd done a little bit of that before. But this was the first full-blown writing the book um, from start to finish So I did that, and after that, I just started getting more opportunities to be a ghostwriter, with it culminating in being hired to write It Takes a Village by Mrs. Clinton in 1995. I want to dig a little bit back into your fascinating resume. This is a great story, uh, this book. It tells a really interesting story about the writing life, about how our government works, and also, too, I think about how how we define ourselves in writing yeah. and, and by identifying with others and right. grafting those pieces of others onto ourselves. You had an amazing opportunity. You're 20 years old, and you got pulled into the Washington Post just as it was beginning its ascent. Talk about just the feeling of being pretty fresh out of college and headed into a powerhouse in American life. So this was 1982. So it was, you know, eight, nine years after Watergate. And Uh, I arrived in the style section. I was 22. I had just three months before graduated from UC Berkeley. And so in the style section, that was what we call soft news. So I was there. um, So I wasn't near sort of the Watergate legends. Uh, Bob Woodward and Ben Bradley were still at the Post. Carl had left. But I was in the style section where they had more than their share of talent, a lot of wonderful, zany, Pulitzer Prize-winning writers, editors. And, you know, it was it was an amazing opportunity. I'm not sure I realized its full value at the time, but just to be even answering the phones of people with that much talent who were walking around and talking about their stories. And I was, I sat in a bay of copy aides, copy boys outside of the big editor's offices. But there was this row of assignment editors who were editing all these amazing writers. And I got to sit there in between calls and eavesdrop on the best editing that you can imagine. And I 
absorb that. I mean, by just by osmosis, by being around it. And it also, it gave me hope in that I was seeing people earning their living as writers. And that was incredibly inspiring. I would imagine so. Now, you know, you were describing eavesdropping on editors. And I have to think that those were the formative moments for you as a a ghostwriter in that writers always talk about how they eavesdrop and listen to conversations. But if you were privy to the conversations of editors, what would happen to you? You would become Barbara Todd Feynman. What an amazing thought. Well, I was several years away from meeting my husband, so I was just Barbara Feynman at the time. But yeah, no, I mean, eavesdropping on editors and listening to these people with these writing lives was an amazing experience for me. And, um, you know, I guess the connection to ghostwriting would be that I was imagining being these writers. And I would I was imagining, not these specific writers, but I was imagining being in this situation where I had written things and then that that work would be um, improved by these amazing editors. And that's what ghostwriters do. They improve. They either take raw material and they uh, calibrate it, they appropriate it, or sometimes you have to work, uh, you know, you have to dream things up out of whole cloth if the person that you're writing for doesn't have the time or the inclination to give you any material. So I think just being privy to this writing and editing process in the style section, I think you're right. It was sort of the early seeds of me learning how to appropriate other people's work. One of the things you write about that I think is such an American aspect of American life that isn't ever often addressed is this idea of what I call career by aggregation, which is we all go to college and we'll get our degrees. And I'd say maybe about one in 10 people actually does something with the degree. Yes. (laughs) Instead, they get out of college. They have to get the first job they can. Yes. And they try to get something close and it gets closer and then they get twisted off their path. Talk about your career by aggregation. Yeah. That's that's actually something I've thought about a lot. And I teach journalism at Georgetown and I counsel – my students more uh, do as I didn't do. Um, <laughs> so, you know, what I so I majored in creative writing at Berkeley and I got out of school and all I knew was that I wanted to be a writer and I knew I wanted to write novels. I did not know how I was going to pay the rent, much to my father's despair, who kept encouraging me to go to law school, as my big brother and big sister had done. And my brother knew somebody who worked at the Washington Post who was able to get me an interview to be a copy boy. And I thought, you know, I didn't really articulate it to myself this clearly, but I just felt if I was around people working with words, that that would be the beginning of something. I thought that that would lead me, I hope that would lead me to the path that I wanted to take, which was novel writing. And um, that didn't really happen because what happened was real life, practical life reared its ugly head, which is I had to support myself. And so I was in this wonderful newsroom around all these talented 
you know, inspiring people, but they weren't they weren't writing novels. They were doing journalism. So that's the path I started to follow. So that's the aggregating, and that's sort of being swept along on this current that happens after you graduate and you don't stay true to necessarily your major. You really can't in many ways. I mean, as you write, the real world <laughs> intervenes in our lives. It does. And in, in fact, it's almost, for me, it was almost pretentious. I want to be a novelist. Like, okay, well, that's great. I, you know, I want to be, you know, an Olympic figure skater. It's like, you, you, you have to live in this world. You have to be practical. So uh, I started to realize that and, and to and to try and construct a life for myself where I wouldn't get too far away from words, but it wasn't realistic for me to devote all my professional time to it because I needed to pay the rent. You came into the newsroom at a time when the sexism was still really rampant in the industry. Yeah. It's no, that's less the case, which I think we can say now. Yes. Could you talk about coming out of college where, I mean, when you're in college, those differences aren't really so apparent. That's right. Because, I mean, we've all read studies about how sometimes professors call on male students more, you know, this kind of thing. But really, I was, if that was true at Berkeley, I never noticed it. I, it either wasn't true or I was oblivious. So it it wasn't on my mind that it was a liability to be a woman and when I left school. And when I got to the Washington Post, there were plenty of women in the style section, and there were editors in the style section. But on the masthead itself, there were not, there were very few women. There was Catherine Graham, the publisher of the Washington Post. But there weren't, there weren't women at the very highest ranks. And there was sexism going on. I can remember a couple of different uh, males in the newsroom who were accused of sexual harassment. And I can remember that it wasn't handled as well as it would be today. So that was going on there. But it was also this kind of weird time for equal rights because we had won equal rights. You know, we had already gone through, you know, the good girls revolt, um, you know, the Newsweek lawsuit of female researchers who felt they weren't being um, moved up through the ranks. And it, it was supposed to be equal. So in some ways, it was harder because it was because it was more subtle. And and so as a woman, I felt I wasn't really sure if it was just my temperament, you know, because I tend to be a people pleaser. Um, I'm not aggressive professionally. So I didn't really know if it was me holding myself back or more sort of the professional institutional um, ways that things were at that time. I think one of the uh, real accomplishments of this book is the the lighthearted tone. It, it, it's fun to read this book because you, you. Ta- you take this, uh, even though you're immersed in 
what are literally some of the most deadliest, uh, serious toxic. events, toxic events yeah. uh, of, you know, the past uh, 20, 30 years. That said, you approach this all, this book, it's fun. <laughs> I, yeah. Did you have fun writing it? I had a I had a great time writing it, with a few exceptions, with a few chapters that were just really painful. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, I had a great time writing it. And my approach, I try, I really want to be one of those people who um, doesn't take themselves too seriously. I like to take serious things seriously, but I don't want to take myself too seriously. And um, my self-therapy is having a sense of humor and trying to see the, the funny side in life. And I'm, I'm grateful if I can make anybody else laugh. And I'm grateful when other people make me laugh. Just flying here from Washington, I sat next to a, love, a lovely woman, and we were having a great chat, and she dropped her eyeglass case, and she was fishing around. You know how we're all packed in on these planes now. She, she couldn't really get a, a, a clear swoop at the ground. And finally, she ended up grabbing. <laughs> she grabbed the foot of the woman sitting behind her instead of her glass case. <laughs> and it was we both just lost it laughing. It was really embarrassing, but it felt so good. And if I can make people laugh, if there are moments in my book where you just crack up, yay. <laughs> yeah, and that's nice because I, you're covering some of the more dire aspects of our, our nation's history. Uh, let's, one of the things that this book does is you have a lot of really memorable characters. Yeah. And, and I, I love uh, Woodward. I think you do a great job. Uh, crafting him as a character yeah. and, and as a man. So talk about after all these years, yeah. picking up and, and writing about him back then yeah. and recreating yourself back then and yeah. him back then yeah. as from you, who you are now. Yeah. So I had, for the book, I had several different kinds of documents. I had some diaries that I kept sporadically. Um, when I was deposed by the Whitewater uh, lawyers, I... Um, I have the transcripts from that. I've got um, just my day books, so I knew where I went on which days. In terms of recreating the scenes with Woodward, you know, some of those scenes are seared on my memory Mm -hmm. um, just because they had a big effect on me. But it is interesting, I think, what you're getting at. So a lot of the book takes place... 20, 20 years ago, 21 years ago, 25 years ago. Um, so it's, it's a weird, it's a weird feeling to write about your younger self. It's a very unsettling feeling to, to look back. And, um, you know, there's some things that don't change about us. Um, as writers, our voices mature, but the core of it stays the same. My, um, my attempt, at least, at a sense of humor, um, my vocabulary. You know, I'm really interested in um, literary forensics mm-hmm. and um, scholars who 
look at manuscripts and figure out who wrote them. You know, there's a, a big a book out now where they use uh, big data to analyze yes, the writers. Uh, exactly. And I'm I'm really interested in that. And, and I have actually my students kind of analyze their own writing voices. I think that's mm-hmm. important. And, and, you know, there's different things. How long are your sentences? How short are your sentences? What kind of va- vocabulary do you use? Do you have favorite words? Do you, How do you use punctuation. I'm, 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 I overuse semicolons because I love to talk. I don't like to ever finish a thought. So <laughs> I feel like I can cheat with a semicolon. So looking back on my earlier self, I can, I can read my published writing, things that I wrote that w- were published under my byline in the Washington Post, for instance, and the voice is still the same. But maybe I've matured. So some of the ideas I look back and I'm like, oh, that was definitely me, much younger. Um, so that is that's one interesting thing about it. But the other thing is is looking back on difficult, painful uh, turmoil, and now looking back at it as a fifty-seven-year-old woman, as as opposed to when I was going through a lot of this stuff, which was in my twenties and my thirties. And I hope I have some wisdom now. And I, I, I definitely tried in this book to be very honest about my own mistakes and my own complicity in. Um, I made choices to be invisible, both, you know, um, tangibly, as a ghost. I guess that's an oxymoron, but also just in the way I moved through my life. And I tried, I tried to document that honestly in this book. So, so that was the harder part of writing this book, in being really honest about my mistakes. But I knew, I knew from being on the other side of this, when I'm coaching people who I'm helping to write a book or if I'm ghostwriting, that readers are really smart. And they can detect very quickly if you're not owning your own mistakes and if you're not giving them the whole truth. And so I felt that the only way to write a book that I would feel good about was to do that as best as I was able to. I think that this book does a great job of creating some of these really complicated relationships that you had with some of these people. Yeah. Um, Because there's admiration there's suspicion and paranoia paranoia is a is a word that's never very far from you keep i've almost like kept turning over the page to see if it was printed on the back there because it seems to run through this book and not without reason yes so uh, i think talk about just the feeling of paranoia in washington do you experience that now well, I don't now because I'm not ghostwriting. Okay. So um, my life is simpler now. I'm uh, I continue to teach at Georgetown, so um, I'm energized and inspired by my students because they're young and um, they're just full of life, and it's so my daily life. I'm not having those kind of stresses, although. With this new administration, that's a whole nother story. Um, but yeah, there is a lot of um, paranoia in the book. There's and 
I don't know if I would use the word paranoia, but uh, I'm not arguing with it. I'm just not sure I would use it. Um, Washington is a very, uh, the relationships there are very transactional. Mm-hmm. And Explain what you mean by that. Yeah. So they're not necessarily based on love and friendship. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that is a quote for the ages. That is a quote for the ages. Um, so they're, you know, they're based on what can I give you and what can you give me in return. And, you know, in other in other cities, I think it's more about money. I'm not saying it's not about money. Certainly money makes the world go around in Washington. You know, after all, we have lobbyists there. But the the primary currency is knowledge. It's information. It's often secret information. And that's that's one of the themes that's at the heart of this book. It's having information. It's extracting information. It's trading information. And that can that can really wear on your soul. And that's what happened with me. We're going to start this segment with another reading by Barbara Feynman Todd from her book, Pretend I'm Not Here. Then they asked me six different ways if I ever went in the book room when I was staying overnight. I kept telling them I only went in there twice, and when I did, I didn't notice anything. I went in there to speak to Mrs. Clinton, who was exercising in a room beyond that room. Actually, I remember taking a wrong turn and ending up in a closet of the president's suits. I didn't mention that. Only I could get lost in a closet within a storage room. So you sprained your ankle on a Sunday? Yes, I confess. I'm clumsy. Lock me up and throw away the key. Sunday night, I sprained it. Monday, I went to the doctor, and Mrs. Clinton told me to stay home and rest. And I would say that Tuesday and Wednesday, someone came over and picked me up and drove me over to the White House. So this would be that one occasion on that Wednesday, right? And the record reflects that you had lunch at the White House. Is that consistent with your recollection? Yeah. Usually when I was working in Mrs. Clinton's office, one of the butlers would bring a sandwich up for me. Hmm, a sandwich up, Mr. Din repeated, as though I had produced the smoking gun. Would you take that sandwich in room 323? I confess, I did it. I ate my sandwich in room 323. Sheesh, this was getting tedious. I I think that uh, one of the aspects of the book I really loved was the, the, the way you explore ghost writing. And the word ghost is really appropriate. Uh, I, I think another take on it might be, for you, it's almost like method acting. And this comes to, brings us to your gig when you essentially hit the absolute what can in point of fact, unarguably the top peak point of ghostwriting yeah. when Hillary Clinton asked you to write her a book about her work with children. Right. <laughs> no title yet, unfortunately. So tell us a little bit about that experience and about taking on that voice. And then for you, the the question is reclaiming yourself. Yes. So... I had worked on other books for Simon & Schuster. Simon & Schuster was Woodward's publisher, Bernstein's publisher, Ben Bradley's publisher. They knew my work. I had, besides being the researchers on those books, not the writers, but the researchers, I had done some freelance editing for them and worked on a couple other books. So 
they asked me if I would be interested in working on Hillary Clinton's book. No brainer. I said yes. I went over to meet Mrs. Clinton. Um, she said thumbs up, so I was hired. The mandate was write a book with Mrs. Clinton about her work for with for um, women and children policies, just all the nonprofit work she had done, et cetera. Um, it was a tight deadline. This was February of 95. The book was due Labor Day. And she was extremely busy. She'd just come off the health care debacle. She had worked on um, sort of a precursor to Obamacare, mm -hmm. you know. I remember that yeah. well. <laughs> yeah, just some of your readers might be younger than us, Rick. Um, and uh, she was also going through... Uh, Whitewater hearings. Uh, she and her husband had uh, financial dealings that had um, come under scrutiny, and uh, there were, you know, congressional hearings. And so she had a lot on her plate besides just the regular first lady, you know, do this fundraiser, <laughs> host this, you know, pick out this China pattern, you know, have this cause. This is something that happens to um, many of your clients. They're, um, it's not necessarily that they can't write a book. Exactly. They don't Thank have you. time. They don't have time. Many of them are, you know, they're all, they're all extremely accomplished people. It's not that they aren't capable. They don't have time. Writing a book, as you know, takes very <laughs> focused, careful, uh, in-depth work, and they don't have time. They it, don't have time to themselves. They have people scheduling them and handling them. So I was hired to interview the book out of her, to read all of her papers, you know, speeches, you know, policy papers, et cetera, and come up with ideas, come up with a book, uh, come up with drafts that she would make her own, this kind of thing. And um, that's what I did, but it got really, really complicated by a, a big White House mess. Um, and... You know, I came out of it feeling like I wanted to get as far away from Washington as I possibly could. That's another theme in this book. I keep trying to leave Washington. <laughs> um, you remind us that it's a swamp, and it's actually literally, in fact, a swamp. <laughs> if so, they had built on top of it. <laughs> so it that, that's that's under that's it. Some people dispute that. It's 1% to 2% of the topography of Washington is officially swampland. Mm -hmm. But it's, it feels, it, and I'm talking literally, it feels swampy because it's so humid. And people referred to it as a swamp, and then it became this metaphor for the political climate. And it's just too good to give up now. But it really is only 1% to 2% of the topography. Uh, I think that f um, when you – the scenes with Hillary Clinton are really interesting. I'd like you to tell us – it must be really uh, intense to sit down and interview the First Lady of the United States and somebody who's clearly seen by both parties as a potential uh, presidential candidate and a 
highly threatening one, depending on which side you're looking at it. So this was, this was 1995. So nobody was talking about her being a presidential candidate. But I did, I did point out in, um, in my book that actually before I went to work for her, I was uh, ghostwriting for uh, Congresswoman Marjorie Margolis Mezvinsky, who, um, who asked Mrs. Clinton if she could have an interview with her for her book. And so Marjorie and I went over to the White House, and this is the first time I was meeting Mrs. Clinton. And so Marjorie interviewed Mrs. Clinton, and I kept my mouth shut because, first of all, Marjorie was a former journalist. She didn't need my help interviewing her. Um, and second of all, um, I was intimidated. But at the end of the interview, Marjorie looked at me and she said, Barbara, do you have anything you'd like to add or ask Mrs. Clinton? Just as a generous act, she -hmm. did that, which I really appreciated. And I said to her, it just kind of popped out of my mouth. I said uh, something to the effect of, you know, do you think the country's ready for a female president? When do you think that, that we will get one? And she said something. I would have to look in my book because I had it transcribed, so I have the exact answer. But but she made a prediction of like 10 to, 10 to 15 years. And so I wrote in my book, she came pretty close. <laughs> she did. For, yeah, because it was, it was uh, 20 years. Well, in 2008, she ran. Mm-hmm. Um, and we didn't get a female president, but we got a female uh, – we got a presidential – a viable presidential candidate who was a woman twice – um, so yeah, I, I think that uh, in this book, you do such a wonderful job of showing us who you are and how you see these the the people you that yeah. you're um, writing the books for. And I, for me, one of the real draws was to watch you create yourself as a character because. I have to say you're you're conflicted about yourself. Yeah. And there are so many times when you say, so there it is, my life in an eggshell, my desire to be a writer, my desire to please, my complicity in my own disappearance and my meek protests against that very fact. Yeah. I think that those are – that takes a lot of bravery to write that kind of insight about yourself. It's It's like – I mean – you could pay a ter- therapist $10,000 to get you to say that well, <laughs> to women. So I'll respond to that, but I'll say first that when I've had potential clients contact me wanting me to help them write a book, I have said to them gently, and I hope this doesn't sound unkind because I don't mean it unkindly, but I have suggested to people that what might be more appropriate is if they discussed their life with a therapist rather than try and write a book about it. <laughs> that, that book writing, if you're, if you're hoping to publish, if the goal is to publish, that the goal should not be catharsis. And so I feel like a giant hypocrite because after 20 years of telling people that, what I did was, and I didn't, I did not explicitly set out to write this as therapy, um, but it felt really therapeutic. To go back to your question about, or your statement that it's brave, I don't look at it as bravery. I look at, you know, 
firefighters, uh, people defending our country as brave. What I look at this as is a necessity for somebody who wants to take themselves seriously as a writer. I feel very strongly that to write anything worth reading, you've got to be completely honest. And I felt that if I, the little passage that you read comes very early on in the book. And I felt that I had to state that as um, sort of my mission statement. And I had to be honest with myself and my readers what I was doing, why I was doing it, and how I felt about myself as a writer. And I felt I felt that I used ghostwriting to to dodge myself. And I I my hope is that young people reading this book, whether they're writers or you know they want to be uh, champion surfers, whatever it is, that they're clear with themselves about what their goals are. And they're clear with themselves about whether or not they've got the talent, the skill, whatever it is, to do it. And if they evaluate themselves and if other people they trust evaluate themselves as having what it takes, then they don't let anything get in their way, anybody, anything, and they just go for it. I didn't go for it. So that's my message to young people. For older people, it's, you know, I've got this little, <laughs> I've got this little magnet somebody gave me. You know, it's an aphorism, and it's... Um, it's it's never too late to become who you wanted to be, which is really cheesy and hallmarky and all that. But you know, with with the exception of no, the champion surfer at fifty seven, that's not going to work. No. But if what you want to do is write, as we get older, we become better writers. If you if if you always wanted to write, if you've been writing things and not sharing it with anybody, if you've been an attorney or an accountant or a tech guru, or a podiatrist, but you've got something in you that you want to write, you should go for it. You should go for it. You don't have to give up on that dream, because 30 years later, you're going to be a better writer. You're certainly a better person. You've got more wisdom. So that's, I felt like if I could be honest about the choices I've made, and the choices that I will make, that it might inspire somebody else. That's my big hope. And then, so that's kind of lofty, inspiring people. But at the very least, I tried to put some humor in there so that, you know, people could laugh. Well, I think this is a great book for somebody who just wants an engaging look at Washington without getting pulled in to yeah. the nest of wires, traps, barbs, and hooks. Yeah. There's, there's oh no gosh. partisanship in this book. I, I think you do yeah. a great job Thank you. on that. Um, but you do give a very engaging and in-depth look at Washington. And I think that w- what is clear is, you know, for all we hear about legislation and economics and big data and all that stuff, what really moves stuff in Washington is the power of personality. It is the power of personality. You've got it. And that's, you know, that's what I tell my, I tell my in a slightly different way, but I tell my students – um, that in addition to all the knowledge that they're amassing and the skills they're getting, they also need to learn how to be functioning adults. <laughs> and they need to learn how to develop rapport with people. They need to respond to emails in a timely fashion. They need to pick up the phone and talk to people. They need to make eye contact with people. I mean, this sounds all like obvious stuff, but I think 
you know, I think I think our kids. I have a I have a teenager. I have a college student teenager person in my life. Um, you know, it's they've got their faces and their phones all the time down looking at a screen, and that it, that's not going to get you a job. Nope. You, you've got to go into an interview with your phone shut off and look people in the eye and really connect with people. And that that's the good part of Washington. It is it is about relationships. The bad part is that so much of it has. I'm going back to that word transactional. Mm. That it's um, that 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 people in Washington sometimes often value the transaction over the relationship. It's either quid pro quo or an eye for an eye, depending on what kind of transaction you're conducting. Very well said. That's exactly right. Uh, for me, as I read this book, I, in terms of it being a manual for writers, it is superb because it talks mm-hmm. about the writing life. that you And you were just talking about this too. I think the most important aspect, the most important thing you can do to contribute to your own skills writing beyond like putting butt in chair and fingers on keyboard or in pen paper. That's number one. After that, growing up. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that it sounds kind of it's it's hard to do. It is hard to do. (laughs) I I am an age at which many people are supposed to be you know, in heading into senescence and still being <laughs> accused of acting like a teenager. Me too. Yeah. Uh, talk about just, you know, how much of this book, when you were writing this book, were you thinking, I mean, this is a book you could teach from. I could, except I wouldn't because <laughs> I don't like when professors teach their own books. But if there are any professors out there, please. Um, yeah. Being a writer besides talent, you really need Mm self-awareness. And I guess that goes back to what I was saying about wanting to be truthful in this book about myself. Truthful to yourself. That's important. You have to be truthful to yourself and about yourself. And if you don't have that, then your perspective is skewed. You've got to know where you are and who you are before you can portray the worlds that you want to portray. And I think that's part of the struggle that you see in my book, me trying to face my life as a writer and what I had achieved, what I hadn't achieved, where I went wrong, where I made mistakes with people in my professional life. Um, And then not only the mistakes that I made, but also when when people made mistakes with me, when people betrayed me, I didn't call them on it, mm. you know? And I think that's another thing that I would hope that students, that younger people reading this book, especially women, if somebody isn't treating you right in the professional world, you know, call them on it. Don't just, don't just fade away. Don't disappear. Don't be invisible. But confront them. Professionally and calmly, but confront them. Don't just go and hide in a corner, which is what I did in a way after um, the Hillary Clinton chapter uh, didn't go so well. I just faded away. But I think that ultimately you triumph by being by finding your own story and telling it so well. Uh, and Thank you. I, so 
maybe just talk about you had shaped so many other people's stories and so many other stories and and been shaped by yes. other people's stories, by right. the stories you were writing, yeah. particularly in the Clinton case, where the story you wrote itself became this whole kind of tawdry controversy with yeah. paper. And I mean, yeah, it's, it's just, yeah. it's, those sections of the book are really fun to They're, read. Yeah. Not fun to live, but <laughs> no. fun to read. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, so uh, talk about um, when you were uh, writing these kind of painful sections, but you want to make them fun. That That's a challenge. You know, it, it wasn't, that actually wasn't a challenge to me because I do see, I see life in, um, it's not monochromatic. It's not either painful or funny. It's both at the simultaneously. S- simultaneously. <laughs> and it's, you know, I mean, comic relief. Thank goodness for that. So I'd be writing something, and then I would be laughing at my younger self. And, you know, I couldn't take myself so seriously because I would look back on some of the things, and I would just be like, what were you thinking? Or what were you not thinking? And, you know, through the lens of time, I made my peace with it, but I also enjoyed crafting it into a narrative. And it, I I think one of the ways I was able to write the more painful parts is I just said, I didn't really articulate this to myself, but it was just, this is muscle memory. I'm crafting a narrative. This is a story. I've told this story to trusted friends at dinner parties, and they've you know, their eyes have gone wide and they've said, you got to write this down. And I sat down and I did it. And it just, it just flowed. It just came out of me. There just were a few sections that were really tough to write. And there was no humor in those for me. The new book by Barbara Feynman Todd is Pretend I'm Not Here. Thank you for joining me, Barbara. Thank you, Rick. It was really fun. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.